At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. My guest today is Namata Narang, who's the literary editor at Brown Girl Magazine, an online magazine empowering South Asian voices that published a collection of essays called Untold, Defining Moments of the Uprooted. The essays in this anthology are about universal themes like love, sexuality, schoolyard tribulations, all told through the perspective of being South Asian Namata has her own experience of being born in Bangkok, Thailand, then moving to the US and then the UK for college. Her perspective on diversity and inclusion is a great fit for her work at Brown Girl Magazine, and I was so happy to have her on the podcast to talk about her life, her work, and the unique cultural whiplash she has experienced. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Across the table from me in person, welcome Nimata Narang. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me in person. It's so nice to meet you. Well, let's talk about why we are here together. You are the literary editor of Brown Girl Magazine that was founded in 2008. Can you tell us, you know, why it was founded, who it's for? And I kind of want to share with everyone that they have this incredible anthology called Untold, Defining Moments of the Uprooted, which, look, I know I um, do not qualify as a brown girl, but I think every single person can identify with some of the aspects in these beautiful nonfiction essays. But let's start from the beginning. Tell us about the magazine and also how you found your way there. For sure. So as you said, Brown Girl Magazine was founded in 2008 and it was born out of the need for representation. And basically South Asian women in college campuses felt like they weren't able to share the stories that resonated with them most. They felt like anytime they had to write for college newspapers or anything of the like, they had to somehow whitewash their stories. And so they thought, why not just create a platform or an online publication where brown women could write stories for brown women? And then from that, Brown Girl magazine just kept growing year after year. And Trisha got involved. Trisha is our editor-in-chief, the CEO. She got involved very early on. 
and very recently became her full-time venture in 2018 or 2019, I believe. And she just transformed it from an online publication to a whole media company. Like we have the anthology that you mentioned. We have the Jot Room podcast, which is hosted by Kirtana Nikki, and they converse with South Asians in Hollywood and entertainment industry. We have Lurky Power, our own merchandise. There's so many things that are yet to come. And so I was very lucky to get involved during the pandemic, actually. I had written a piece about Irfan Khan, who was a late actor. He primarily appeared in a lot of Hindi films and a lot of Hollywood films. And it was a testimony to his legacy, the legacy he had left behind in the Hindi film cinema. And someone from Brown Girl found it. And she reached out to me and said, would you like to write for us? And then from there, I started writing pieces. I started interviewing authors, started writing for the book section. And the anthology came out and I realized that, you know what, we can actually create a space for original fiction. And then I went to Trisha, we spoke about it for months. And then finally, earlier this year in 2022, a vertical was born and I very honored to be the literary editor. It's one of the first literary verticals that is primarily dedicated to featuring original fiction by South Asian authors, emerging and established, written by South Asian authors for South Asian authors. You have lived all over the world. And I think what informs your work is all those places you've lived, but the experiences you've lived in your body in mm. all these different places. Where did you grow up <laughs> and where are you now in terms of feeling in your own skin? Oh, I love that question. Because this is a question I've been grappling with for the past couple of years about primarily where's home. So I grew up in Bangkok, Thailand, lived there for 18 years and lived in a very Punjabi South Asian household. So grew up in a very multicultural, multilingual household already. Came to the US when I was 18 for college, Boston, went to Tufts, did a year in the UK at Oxford, went back to Tufts. Then just after graduating 2017, was very lucky to live in multiple cities in Minneapolis and LA. Now, finally made the move to New York around three weeks ago. So it's been a bit of a whirlwind. As a writer yourself, where do you feel like you are in understanding some of those experiences mm. of being a brown girl? Right. I think it's very important to understand that there's no one experience of being a brown girl. It's yeah. not a monolithic experience. And that's what the magazine tries to highlight. Like someone like me who grew up in Southeast Asia, for example, and made the move to the US, my experiences, while there are some parallels and there will be some moments or experiences that do resonate with other brown women, it can be very different from someone who grew up here in the US. And so finding a platform like Brown Girl Magazine helped me realize that I wasn't so alone and how different I felt. And that there was community in the diasporic movement, in the diaspora in itself. So one thing that Brown Girl Magazine does, it highlights written work by South Asian authors from the US, from the UK, from Canada, with 
the emergence of this vertical, for example, I feel so honored to be a part of it. I feel so lucky to be able to speak with emerging established writers, not just from the US, but from the UK, from um, Southeast Asia. Like my goal is to broaden the scope of writers we include, but there's also an element of pressure. I feel pressure when I feel like there's no room for me to make a mistake. There's no room for me to grow. There's no room for me to learn on the spot. Because a platform like this isn't very common, there is a little bit of pressure for me to make sure I do justice to my writers, the people I work with. And so in a way, I feel very lucky and I'm so excited, but I also feel like, oh gosh, I need to make sure the work that I share or highlight is in some ways representative, but also it can't represent the entire scope of the brown girl experience. Like we discussed, it's not just one monolithic experience. I find the most rewarding part of my job or this opportunity when I actually connect with someone and I actually hear their stories. And then the emphasis is very much on them versus what am I trying to create? It's more, no, what are the authors trying to create? I think too, the anthology each story in there is so specific. Mm. And I think, you know, any of us that are drawn to great writing know that it's in the specifics that, you know, we, it creates a world and uh, we're just drawn to the way someone paints a picture. It feels like that's at the crux of all these stories. If you give a place for people to tell, for others to tell their own mm-hmm so specific to their own experience, the layers of everyone's stories together just brings such a bigger understanding. Of course. And like the anthology itself is so beautiful in that many topics that are considered taboo are brought to the front. Like for example, fertility issues or mental health or immigration to the US or like really heavy topics that we don't really discuss in the community the anthology allowed these authors or these writers the opportunity to just share them and on on paper and ink. And I think the anthology allowed people to realize that, okay, their stories are valid. And like you mentioned, you don't have to, the pressure of feeling like you have to represent an entire community, that can go away. And in a way, the vertical, the reason why I want to champion original fiction is also to provide spaces for those stories. So the first writer we worked with, Malavika Kanan, she wrote about, simply, it's a story about a mother taking her two daughters from Cleveland to India after her great-grandmother passed away. But it, the story itself is about a generational curse that manifests through the Rina, the main protagonist, experience in India when she sees her family. And her family gets scared of her, and she's like, oh my gosh, this is the woman who's gotten cursed. She's passing along the curse. And in fiction, we're allowed to be inventive and playful and talk about those heavy topics like intergenerational trauma, what it means to be a woman in a South Asian household, what it means to grow from the molds of roles we've created for ourselves and what the next generation will do with that. The second author we're working with, Adiba Jagardar, she's a Bangladeshi Irish author, and she said something interesting to me when we 
we've been chatting for months now and she said that a lot of times whenever she gets commissioned to write something, people always ask her to write about the trauma or the sad stories, the immigrant woes that accompany what people think are South Asian stories. And she said, why can't I just write about my first crush? Why can't I just write about what it's like getting my heart broken or winning a competition in school? And so her story is about an Eid party and the two moms, her the main character's mom and her cousin's mom are in a fight. And the story is about how they reconcile the fight through food. It's something very simple, but also it shows that when we share a specific community story, it doesn't just have to be through sorrow. It doesn't just have to be through trauma. It can also be through joy. Well, that's also a cliche. Yeah. Like not everyone's story is that traumatic mm-hmm. immigrant experience. You've got to allow for all the different stories. And even if it touches upon that, it's so much more for every exactly. person. It's so layered. It's not just about what it's like being an immigrant. It's also what it's like being a woman. What is it like being the eldest child in the family? There's so many parts to people's identities that we don't get to touch upon. And I think Brown Girl Magazine does a really good job of allowing those stories to be seen and also highlighted. While we're on the anthology, I thought it was really interesting that it's divided into these three sections Mm. and it's identity, being, and then relationships. And Mm. it was such a beautiful way to group the stories, just to give kind of these boundaries that held the stories. And I'd love to just know about the the thought behind that. Mm -hmm. So the editors, Gabrielle and Kamini, I don't think they had those themes set before they actually did a call out for submissions. So in 2019, I believe they did a call out for submissions. And then through the essays they received, they found these recurring themes Mm. and they realized that, oh, wow, these themes, they are interconnected, but these are the types of stories that keep coming up. And then their way of creating those parameters was also a way to not only organize the anthology, but if you do read and everyone should, there's a beautiful way that the stories kind of flow. And I don't want to give away most of this, a lot of the stories, but it grows from understanding who you are in a person to who you are in a community and how that kind of interconnects with one another. So I think that was the thought process behind the anthology because each story stands alone for sure. But then when it's read in conjunction with, in tandem with others, there's just like a beautiful narrative of like what we're talking about, that there are many layers to the stories. There are many layers to stories that are untold, like the titular character. Oh, yeah. Never mind. It has to be said that we are in this tiny office because of the New York City street noise where we were going to record it. And so we have no fresh air. So it's very intimate. Yeah, it's very intimate and lovely. <laughs> but as you were saying that these themes emerged, mm-hmm. I mean, what it's almost like a sociological study to gather what people are thinking and feeling in this current moment. A lot of them mm-hmm. are reflections on the past. A, a theme that I definitely felt and from speaking with South Asian friends and other authors that 9-11, right. what happened then and how it affected the South Asian community mm-hmm. was so drastic in terms of 
the racism experienced overnight? Were there certain themes that you felt, I thought we were done with that, Mm. but they're still bubbling up. We haven't Mm. exhausted this as like, it's still, we're still holding. No, that's a, that's a really interesting question because I, so I didn't grow up in the U.S. and I I had a very different experience learning about 9-11 in Thailand and it's still, the effects of that still reverberated across the world. And so in a way, when I speak with my South Asian friends and many creatives, they feel like it's a pre-9-11 or post-9-11 in terms of the way they think about themselves. One theme that does emerge in this anthology is the idea of belonging. So that very much impacted how they felt they fit into the community. It's kind of a double-edged sword where you feel like you're hyper-visible and yet you feel this pressure to assimilate as much as you can. And that's really hard to do, especially when you're trying to figure out who you are. And a lot of these stories in the anthology were coming-of-age stories where people trying to figure out who they were in this time and place where people decided who they were before even meeting them, before even getting to know them. What you mentioned in terms of things that we're still grappling with and dealing with, what I'm realizing, especially through the pandemic, is that you never quite learn how to deal or completely cope with trauma. It's something that you constantly have to battle. Like the idea of grief, for example, it doesn't Grief doesn't really go away. You just get better at knowing how to handle it. Mm. And there are moments where it just catches you by surprise. And so even in this day and age when there've been stories about 9-11, and of course those stories will never be fully exhausted because it impacted our communities in ways that we'll, you know, we'll still see in future generations. Even kids who are growing up today who didn't live through that will still be impacted. And so I think when Adiba, the author I mentioned who we're working with, when she says something like, I wish our stories weren't just about trauma, it's also trying to understand how do we write about our identity and existence when a lot of it, unfortunately, is a lot of it, unfortunately, is tied to traumatic events that happen. And so in her way, and I don't want to speak for her, her writing about something like an Eid party where the two moms are fighting is her rebellious act. It's her way of reclaiming her narrative and saying, well, this is my way of coping. This is my way of being. This is my the story I want to share. And no one can tell me otherwise. And someone like Malavika, for example, who is writing about generational curse, that's her way of understanding what it means to travel back to India, what it means to reconnect with a family that she didn't grow up with. It feels so important to hear about your experience, but also mm. how you speak about other writers, which is obviously why you have this job, because it feels like the concern you have about <laughs> getting it right is exactly why you are the perfect person Thank for this. You. But to you kind of switch tracks, I want to know what it was like to not grow up in America, Mm. come to college in America, then go to university (laughs) in the UK. Right. I'll just share my own experience. I'm Australian and I came as an exchange student to the US Mm. and I arrived, you know, I came to New York and then went on a Greyhound bus to get to Ithaca, upstate New York. Mm. 
and I was arriving at Cornell, I was like, <laughs> are these real frat houses? <laughs> I thought I was on a movie set <laughs> with the Greek letters stuck oh, on gosh. these big house mansions. It was the most bizarre experience. I thought it was just American college was like that in the movies. Right. I didn't realize that it reflected, you know, in many parts, a structure in place, mm. you know, that it, for better or worse, you know, all these legacies. And I found it quite shocking. And I ended up having a really incredible life-changing year. But mm. I'd love to know if there was any whiplash there. Right. You know, to come from Bangkok to Tufts, yeah. to then go to Oxford, you know, that one of the most erudite <laughs> institutions in the world. Mm -hmm. Just start wherever you want to. Oh, gosh. Well, thank you for sharing your experiences. I think it's it's very interesting because for me, going to Tufts, so I went to an international school in Bangkok. A lot of my teachers were American. A lot of my classmates were American. It was a school for expats, essentially, hence the American accent. And when I first went to Tufts, it was kind of a confounding experience because when people met me, heard me speak, they just assumed I was American. And in a way, I hate to admit it, it maybe helped my quote-unquote assimilation. It maybe helped me feel more that I was it was easier for me to adapt and in comparison with other international students. Going to a place like Bangkok, I mean, just the weather differences, 18 at Tufts, first time I'd ever seen snow, that was a shock in itself. But I think what really struck me about the U.S. collegiate system was just how, this is going to sound a little arrogant, how much easier it was than going up in Bangkok. It just, the classes were great. I learned so much, but I did the IB system in Bangkok. It prepared me for, I think, a lot of my credits transferred just so I just felt like, oh my gosh, is college supposed to be this easy? What I didn't realize is that the college experience, classes will get harder. Adjusting to college will get harder. Making friends, all those like coming of age things we see in movies, those accompany your experience. That is where it gets difficult trying to figure out who you are in a completely new space. And it was the first time I'd ever grappled with homesickness. Mm. It was the first time I'd ever grappled with the understanding that, oh my gosh, I was so lucky to grow up in my Punjabi household, Punjabi community, and being extricated from that willingly in a place like Tufts where it was diverse, but not really at the same time. And then feeling like, oh my gosh, I need to explain myself to everyone I meet. They think I'm American, but they also assume, oh, you're, you know, they have their own assumptions about what someone from Thailand sounds like or looks like or their background and trying to decide, okay, when is it okay? Or when do I feel safe to challenge their assumptions? When do I have the energy to do that? And then the decision to go to England, mm. what prompted that and what specifically did you study there? I studied experimental psychology. Oh, okay. We're <laughs> going to get back into that. <laughs> so the decision to go to the UK, when I was deciding to apply to colleges, I couldn't decide where to go to the US or the UK. And from a very young age, unfortunately, it was instilled that in order to 
be deemed successful, you have to somehow make it in the Western world or the Western countries. So my international school teachers would, from like, I'd say middle school, prime us with the knowledge of like U.S. colleges or U.K. colleges to focus on. I decided to go to the U.S., then the U.K., because I, in a way, wanted to experience both. So that was me attempting to be cunning about it, and it did work out. And I think after two years at Tufts, I was craving for something different. I knew that the tutorial system at Oxford would be very challenging. And I maybe this was the arrogance of being what, 18, 19. I was like, I'm ready for something different. I'm ready for a challenge. Went to the UK. Again, as you mentioned, it's a very erudite, a very... I don't want to sugarcoat it. It was a very white institution. And then being in a college where I was one of three brown women, one of five brown students, and going into a discipline like experimental psychology where all my professors were white was very challenging, was also isolating. Mm. And then it took me a while to find community. It took me a while to feel very comfortable in my skin and... I'm very happy I did that year and I learned a lot, made so many friends and also realized that maybe I don't want to pursue psychology in the more traditional way. I wanted to figure out ways that I could use my degree to help share stories. And then experimental psychology, <laughs> tell me more about that discipline and how it differs from mainstream psychology. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right terminology, but it sounds really, really interesting. So experimental psychology, the question I get a lot is, oh, are you doing experiments on me? What I liked about experimental psychology was the fact that anything I studied was backed by research. It wasn't like pop psychology or folk psychology. Is there anything from that, that study you did that you carry with you every day in terms of how you live your life? So I studied psychology and economics. One of the tenets of economics is the belief that humans are rational beings. And then psychology very much counters that and says human beings are not rational at all. We um, make decisions on a daily basis with very little information. We operate with very little information. And so concepts like bounded rationality, for example, that, you know, we come to decisions that aren't most ideal, but rather satisfactory to, to our day-to-day -day outcomes. Things like that helped me realize that people are a lot more complex than we think they are. Mm. So I'd love to hear about the writers that influenced you mm. most. And I'm fascinated by growing up in Thailand and how obviously there are many great Thai writers mm -hmm. and then being in a Punjabi household, For sure. what were on the shelves there and how that mix, you know, influenced what you love to read. Oh, for sure. So where to even begin? In terms of writers that have influenced me, I was lucky that my English teachers in my international school, for example, were very open to like a very diverse curricula across my years. So we were exposed to Jhumpa Lahiri, Arundhati Roy from a very young age, for example. Growing up in a very Punjabi, I say very Punjabi household because I, I, I lived with my extended family and 
I was influenced not just by my international schooling system, but also the experiences that my parents and their parents carried from, you know, so my great-grandfather came to Thailand after the partition. Mm -hmm. So they were very much influenced by Hindi cinema, for example. And in school, I was exposed to whatever the U.S. curricula was. But luckily, my teachers, they tried to create a more diverse curricula. So I read like Salman Rushdie. So for me, the reason why I gravitated towards English classes mainly was because I grew up in a multilingual household. We spoke English, Punjabi, Hindi, Thai. And because I went to an international school, a lot of my teachers, I've mentioned this, were American. A lot of my classmates were American. And I felt this pressure to master the English language from a very young age. I still had to take Thai classes, but I felt like the better I'd performed in my English classes, the more I'd take to the U.S. curriculum or the the curriculum that my American teachers would share, I felt like I would be able to do better in university. I still think about that sometimes because I don't know if I did that at the cost of, you know, continuing to develop my language skills in Hindi or Punjabi or Thai, but... In a way, I felt like my intelligence would be marked by how well I conversed in English, how American I sounded, how much I I didn't stand out in that class, even though I was in Bangkok, even though I was in Thailand. So I felt the pressure to conform from there, so far away from the U.S. And like I mentioned, coming to the U.S. after that, it was maybe an easier adjustment, but now I feel like... I wish I hadn't done that or I wish I hadn't felt that pressure. And for my parents, the decision to go to an international school was also so that, you know, we'd have, quote unquote, better opportunities for us in the future. And so in terms of what I'd read, what writers influenced me, someone like Jhumpalahiri writing about her immigrant experience, the namesake, a Bengali family going to Boston and feeling out of sorts and trying to figure out their sense of identity or stories like that I would gravitate towards because I didn't quite understand what I was experiencing. I was lucky enough to interview Cal Penn. Yeah. And he said that the work he's most proud of is the namesake. Right. And being in that film for him was kind of just this incredible experience Mm. of being able to kind of inhabit many of the experiences he'd had or the feelings he'd had. Hmm. Yeah. And in terms of the work authors I grew up reading, Balikar Jaswal, for example. Oh, yeah. She wrote the erotic stories for Punjabi housewives. I read that. It came out 2017, the year I graduated from college, actually, and it blew my mind. Because I'd never seen, and she's also Punjabi. She writes about the Punjabi diaspora and she's based in Singapore. So she's an author where I thought, oh, she's kind of similar to me. She has a similar-ish background. People like me exist and we can write stories. So the premise of the story is this young South Asian woman in London teaches creative writing to a group of older Punjabi aunties. And they write about... (laughs) They write about their sex lives, like creatively. And I... 
at first, my first thought was, oh my gosh, how dare she do that? That's so audacious. That's so bold. That's so quote unquote brave. And I was just, that was my first thought. We can write about these things. That's crazy. And then I very quickly realized that a pet peeve for me, whenever I write anything that has to do with my South Asian experiences, when people tell me, oh, that was so brave of you to write that. Mm. And I experienced this through creative writing classes or classes throughout college where if I wrote about a South Asian protagonist going through anything, the number one comment teachers would give me were, that's so brave. You're so, you're being so open and vulnerable. And till this day, I don't quite know how to feel about it because if we're told that it's so brave for us to show up as ourselves, to write about our background, our right, culture. Like I'm just here, like, like a human, like when the next will it be, one. So it's like, when will, if it's constantly, if I'm constantly told it's brave, when will it ever be normalized? Like, when will I feel like, okay, I'm just being myself. Being myself doesn't always have to be an act of bravery. I don't need that pressure. So before, when you mentioned that there's, I have this concern in my role for Brown Girl Magazine, I feel very protective. I want the space to feel safe, to feel welcoming. And I want it to be a space where the authors or the emerging established writers, whomever I work with, feel like they can write about whatever they want. And the thing that the anthology does really well is that it tackles the italics question head on. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. Could you explain the yeah. choice and what we're talking about? For sure. So the editors made a very intentional choice to not italicize, quote unquote, foreign words or phrases that aren't in English. And the reason behind that is so that authors and writers feel like they don't have to constantly explain themselves. It's not an explanatory piece. It's, these are 32 pieces. Their experience. Exactly. And like for another audience who wouldn't understand, it's mm -hmm. like, this is for whoever understands it. Exactly. I don't care. If you don't, if you don't know what that looks, look it up. Exactly. And people are a lot smarter than we give them credit for people. Like if I can grow up reading stories about white men or like white women and understand or find a way to relate to them, why can't the reverse be true? And I think Cal Penn even writes about that in his memoir. It's that our stories, it's not hard to relate to. It's just, we have to stop excusing people. We have to stop catering to the white gaze. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, this conversation is so interesting and just lovely to have. <laughs> But I just want to reiterate how how excellent the pieces are in the mm. anthology. It's so exquisite and it just feels like all these voices, you get to, you know, inhabit these worlds. And I love how it does go from the, the individual to the community in that way. Could you share a couple of contemporary writers that are really inspiring you right now? Oh, for sure. Vaishnavi Patel, her book Geki recently came out. It's a retelling of the mythology Ramayan, but from the stepmother's point of view, I cannot recommend that book enough. She, it's so inventive, it's so playful, it's so fun, and it's like the rage we feel as women when our stories are taken away from us. You really feel that through her pages. Who else? I really... Sopan Deb is also an author I admire very much. Oh, Mayuk Sen, his paperback version of Tastemakers. It's a nonfiction book. I think it just came out. He His book is about 
seven immigrant women who revolutionized food in America. So how they changed the culinary landscape. And he highlights women from all over the world. From India, he highlights Julie Sani. And I I think he's a brilliant writer. He's a food writer. I was lucky to meet with him through Zoom last December, I believe, and we clicked instantly. The reason why I like this work so much is because like from the get-go, he writes that he is a queer Bengali writer, but he is he has a male voice and he's attempting to give these the voice for these women. He's attempting to give them space to share their stories, but he does it in a way where he doesn't it, he doesn't really hide behind them, but he just lets them take charge. That's fabulous. Thank you. Of okay, one of my last questions. What lights you up? <laughs> I love this question. I honestly conversations like this, yeah. meeting people who love reading long walks with people I love and yeah, just people giving me their book recommendations because it's like you're giving me a piece of your heart. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. <laughs> also listeners, Namata's just moved <laughs> from LA to New York City. So we have to give her things to do here. Yes, please. Like little hidden gem restaurants, walks, Mm -hmm. neighborhoods, places to discover. So that's a a call out to everyone. And how can we follow Brown Girl Magazine and then follow you specifically? For sure. Follow Brown Girl Magazine on Instagram, Twitter, all the socials out there. I sound like such a millennial. And in terms of following me, again, all the socials, Instagram, I'm not very much on Twitter definitely not on TikTok. That's just not who I am. In terms of the literary vertical, we're growing it, we're developing it. I'm very lucky to work with a scout and hopefully in the next year, we're able to do more interesting things like not just showcase original fiction, but create a mentorship program or do short story contests, things like that really help it grow. Thank you so much for chatting. And again, everyone, the anthology is called untold defining moments of the uprooted thank you so much thank you lit up is a podcast from sugar 23 it's hosted by me angela ledgewood and is produced by liam billingham olivia allmeyer is the marketing and editorial consultant this week's episode was edited by rebecca seidel mike Mayer and michael sugar are the executive producers Andre Rodofsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks. <laughs>